Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. And to the podcasters. Okay, uh, we are in chapter four of the book of Shemot, very close to a story we've kind of been anticipating uh, for a while. We're like a half a verse away. I have us midway through the Rashi. Um, midway through the Rashi on page, on uh, verse 20, oops, no, verse 22. Um, so to remind us, chapter 4, verse 22 of the book of Shemot, if you're in the, it's the Torah Chaim, uh, one second, just letting people enter. Uh, it's on page Nun. Marta El Paro, this is God's um, speaking to Moshe again, again. We discussed several times how it seems to be um, an interesting weaving together of scenes where this extended conversation between God and Moshe, then it seems that Moshe leaves and then God and Moshe are still talking with each other. Marta El Paro, you should say to Pharaoh, God says to Moshe, Ko Amar Adonai, this is what God has said, Bini Bichori Yisrael, which we discussed uh, at great length, how to translate, including whether the, just the order of the words, my my child, my firstborn is Israel, or Israel is my child, who is my firstborn, and does the order matter, or does it not matter? Um, and I think we got halfway through the Rashi, um, and just to uh, get moving with there, uh, the... the the beginning of, of Rashi is via Martha El Paro, uh, when God says to Moshe, you should say to Paro, and Rashi's, when you hear that his heart is hardened and he refuses to dispatch the Israelites, you should say thus. And we discussed that this is Rashi saying that we, we haven't heard God, um, uh, we, ha- we haven't heard in the anticipation. One second. Someone's joining, but I'm not exactly sure who it is. Let me just see if it's the right person. Um, one second. I don't recognize that number, but maybe it's Sharon Grab from Israel. Yeah, Sharon is, tra- is supposed to be joining this morning. Okay, so... Sh- um, I hope this number that I don't recognize is Sharon. So far, she hasn't joined the audio. When she joins, we'll see what happens. Sharon, is that you who just joined? I am putting in my name. Yes. Okay, good. And just making sure that it's you and not some some bot who's trying to get into the session. Okay. Um, It can't be that the um, first thing that Moses says to Pharaoh is uh, the next two sentences. God has said, my, my, my child is Israel. Uh, and uh, later on in verse 23, it says, and you, um, you neglected, you refused to send the Israelites. So Rashi says that it must be that God is saying to Moses, this is not the first thing you're going to say to Pharaoh. The first thing you say to Pharaoh is let my people go. He's going to refuse. And then you come back to him with this. So he's just um, dealing with that, that, that 
that basic fact and order problem in the verse. And then the one that we were in the middle of discussing, what does this language mean? The first thing Rashi says is, don't just think that the word means firstborn. It doesn't just mean primacy and order. It can mean primacy in import, the language of greatness. And that's where he finished. And it was a verse from the book of Psalms that I want to share uh, with you. <coughs> Excuse me. We were in the middle of looking at this when class ended last week. Um, and I shared with you the, the, the challenge of, use, of, of looking at proof texts that are translated into English because the translation of the text in English may be a translation which undermines the reason why this verse is being used as a proof text. So the JPS translation of the Psalms 89, verse 28, uh, God is speaking about King David. I will even not give him here. No tain means to appoint or to place him in the position of, I will place David in the position of Bechor, which is translated into English as firstborn, because that's how firstborn is usually, Bechor is usually translated. But the way Rashi is using it is to say, David was not the firstborn anything, right? But when God says, I'm going to place him as a whore, I'm going to place him high up in import, above all other kings of the earth. So according to Rashi, that's a good proof text for our verse here. What does it mean when God says, not making any kind of claim that Israel was the firstborn. Firstborn what? What does that, what does that mean? First to, first to emerge um, as a nation? I mean, no. So what does it mean? Uh, first thing Rashi says is primacy. Uh, primacy in terms of import. They are the ones who are most important to me. Uh, you can imagine how this, what, this line of thinking has been you know, a, a troublesome thorn in the side of Jews and their interactions with non-Jews when trying to explain what we think our relationship with God is and whether or not there's anything singular or better about the Jewish people. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but this is one of those texts which, which is a pathway to that rabbit hole. Okay, all of that was review. And then we're halfway through the Midrash, the, the, um, the Rashi. Um, I don't remember who was reading last week. Let me just read this Rashi quickly, and then we'll, we'll, I'll sign someone for the next one. Umidrasho. This is an occasional Rashi tactic. Or actually, I skipped a word. Zepshuto. This is the Pshat. The Pshat is, Bechor means the most important. Umidrasho. But I want to share with you a Midrash. I'll remind you all for the 150th time that Rashi is always sharing a Midrash, or almost always, and he almost always doesn't tell us that he is. This is a way of saying the Midrash I'm about to quote from you is a lovely interpretation. I don't think that that's really what the verse means, but I want to give it to you as a gift. Umidrasho. Kan chatam hakadosh baruchu al-mechirat shalakach Yaakov me'esav. This is the moment, according to this Midrash in Breshi Rabbah, that the Holy One, Chatam, signed on the document, right, ratified on the sale of the firstborn that Yaakov had taken from Asa. That's what the words mean. Someone tells me, tell me what you think the Midrash and the Rashi comment means. The word mean, the words mean that this is the moment in human history where God signed on the, on the, on the dotted line uh, for the sale that Yaakov had, had for, the, for the birthright that Yaakov had taken from Asa. What do you think is going on in the verse? Uh, letter Rebecca. Uh, good morning. Well, I think it, but it, what the what the midrash is saying is that uh, that's where um, Jacob got primacy over Esau because uh, he 
he became like the firstborn and he became superior in rank, so to speak. Um, I wanted to add uh, one other thing, uh, and that is there's actually a word in English that comes from the same root as Bechor, and where the meaning is superior or premium and, and not firstborn. And it's a word that I think we all are familiar with. The word is albacore, as in tuna. Hmm. Meaning it's from like the, the uh, like an Arabic root, albacore. Right. And it means the best tuna. Well, it, there's different theories on what it means, but that's one possibility. Yes. Or, or it might mean it's a really big tuna. Uh, I had no idea that's what albacore came, came, comes from, but I should have because there are a lot of English words that begin with A-L that are from an Arabic root, like algebra, uh, even Albuquerque. Uh, it sounds like it's um, Native American. Albuquer- Albuquerque is actually almost certainly from, a, um, from an Arabic um, uh, shoresh. So add albacore to the list. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So the first thing that, um, that Leonard said is that this is um, a completion of the process that Yaakov uh, began with Esav. Uh, let's say more about that. If, if, what, what's been the status of that, that scene of the steal of the birthright, right? And again, remember the birthright is not the blessing. This is not the end of Parshat Toldo where Yaakov dresses up to pretend to be Esav. That's the blessing. This is when he steals um, from a famished Esav the lentil stew, the pottage, um, or he gives the lentil stew and the pottage in, in exchange for the birthright. What do people make of what we're supposed to think now midrashically of the status of that sale in between then and now? I see uh, Norm and then Barry and then Larry Diane. Well, the the glaring problem is that neither Esav nor um, Yaakov Yisrael has until now been thought of as God's firstborn. One of them might be um, Jack and Becky's firstborn, but God is very different from them, I hope. Say more. I'm not sure if I'm following the thrust of what you're saying. If God is going to say, tell Pharaoh that the people Israel or, or even their ancestor Israel is my firstborn, my problem is, how is that his firstborn? Maybe Adam was his firstborn in some mm. sense, mm. but why would it be um, Israel? Um, to say it's got primacy, that's a reasonable interpretation. But having anything to do with the the one-time dispute between, or the current dispute between um, Asaph and his brother is, to me, very unrelated. Uh-huh. Okay, so I think on some level, Rashi is agreeing with you that the primary, no pun intended, way of understanding the verse is through import, not um, order. Um, but there must be a reason why Rashi is, is invoking this Midrash. And I want us to think about what mini sermon Rashi is giving by going out of character to say, yeah, this is what the verse means, but let's linger on this juicy Midrash a bit. Uh, Barry? Uh, well, it, it goes back first that uh, God had told um, uh, 
Rivka that of the twins in her that one would one would be uh, the have the primacy, um, but um, the uh, the negotiation and the lentils uh, this was between the two brothers. Um, uh, God was silent. Um, uh, only at this time uh, God is acknowledging uh, that this is true. Good, and by inference, maybe we're supposed to imagine that in between then and now, now meaning the scene written in the Torah. It's not clear how God's going to weigh in on that, right? Is God going to ratify that sneaky way of becoming the firstborn? Um, or is God going to suspend um, approval of it? And even if, even if the Midrash says in this scene, God comes out and says, yes, I retroactively approve, it's interesting to think about a Midrashic notion of the uh, generations in between where the Holy One, the creator of the, creator of the universe, was not quite ready to say, I put my stamp of approval on what you did, Yaakov, right? So this is simultaneously, I read this Midrash and Rashi, and it's like a simultaneous approval and disapproval of Yaakov, right? Why is it an approval? Because God's saying, okay, yes, I sign on it. Why is it a disapproval? Because it's been generations since then, and God was holding God's judgment. Not sure how I, God, feel about this being the way that my people are going to get to the top, right? Ultimately, God says yes, but it took a long time. Uh, Larry, Diane? If you're talking, I don't hear you yet. Uh, Sorry. With respect to um, to God's chotemet, Barry said what I was going to say. So uh, I think that <clears throat> the question, is, the, 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 that, that, I think that's the answer there. God had not had not put a seal of approval on it at the time, and He's doing so now. With regard to the etymology of um, Albacore, um, with all due respect to Leonard, my etymological dictionary says it comes from the Portuguese Albacora, which comes from the Arabic Albacara, which we recognize as milk cow, and oh. the the tuna is called that way, not because it's a bachor, but because it's more like a cow, bakar. It's a kuf, not a kaf. Uh, yes, we should have seen that immediately. <laughs> yes, got it. N- next time I buy tuna, which I don't do anymore, I'll, I'll buy it with a kuf. Uh, interesting. Um, well, I, I just want to add something in there. Please. Uh, so the the concept of bachor in, involves not only... Um, status, but also certain kinds of privilege. Um, I mean, typically the firstborn, uh, received a double portion of inheritance. So, um, this is saying something about Israel's, um, entitlement, mm. I guess, which, which is in some ways very problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joanna, I think that there's even a typo in your correction of your typo. I think, uh, Chaf got changed to Chad is my guess. Um, yes, thank you. Zoom <laughs> autocorrect. But can you want just say a little bit more about the, the the what you're chatting about, and then we'll get to other hands that are up. You're talking to me. I was talking to Joanna. Joanna, okay. Do you want to expand on that, Joanna? Sure, sure. So, um, barring the Zoom autocorrect. Um, so I'm referring to the two letters, of course, chaf and chet. There are two words in Hebrew, bachor, spelled differently that mean different things. So bachor means um, choice or chosen. And um, 
and the other bachor means firstborn. So here we're sort of switching the meanings is what Rashi is basically suggesting that bachor, um, we should think of it more as the chosen one. But, and, um, and it's just, it's interesting that both of those words are used both in Psalm 89 and in the Yaakov story, which may be why having already had the reference to the Yaakov story as an additional reference, Rashi brings Psalm 89. Wonderful. I did not pick up on the, the other Bachar in Psalm 89. What verse is it in? I'll share my screen so we can look at it together. That's a nice pickup. Um, I'm looking for it myself. I don't see it. Okay, when you when you verse find twenty, verse twenty, as harimoti bachur me'am, the one chosen as the very interesting. Yeah, um, I've often wondered without re- being able to resolve it, and I have not done the deeper research on it as to whether or not it's just a coincidence that the homophones bachar and bachar can be can certainly be used in the same conversation, right? They're not they're not synonyms, but they're but they're um, connoting similar ideas. Um, so is that just so, sometimes there are uh, etymological or morphological accidents, or could they be emerging from a deeper root way back when that somehow got expressed in two different versions of the hard chaf? Remember that the, the soft chaf, that the chaf back then was much more different than it is now, right? If you're speaking to a Yemenite, a Jew, right? Um, the Bechor is just a different root than Bahar. Uh, because the the chet is, is is much more guttural, but um, but sometimes it's inescapable to think about the ways in which those two roots are cousins of one another and also sound the same. Wonderful, uh, Stevie. Yeah, going along those lines about those uh, terms sort of blending into each other. I was thinking in uh, the bikurim, right? The the first fruits, right? There's a machloket as to whether or not. They're the first in terms of being chronologically first, or if they're first in being in terms of being like the you know first Choice. pick in the draft, right? Like right. the best, right? And very good, right? So um, I think we mentioned Bikurim last week. Um, I wasn't here last week. No, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm just I'm just connecting what you said to what we we're saying. That it's it's one of the places that sometimes the root bet chaf reish appears with a hard chaf, and sometimes just because of the grammar and the of, of the of, of the word, the kaf is dagesht. So it's uh, bakar, levaker mashuhu, with a kaf, not a kuf, means to make something more important. And a bikurim are, as Stevie said, as we learn in Parshat Kitabo, are the fruits that either ripened the first or were thought of as the choicest ones to bring to the altar first around Shepuah. So uh, good. So even in that scene, it's you can imagine Rashi saying, this is either order or significance or both. Wonderful. Joel. Um, is there, is, can I share a screen? Uh, I can, yeah, let me make you a co-host and you can share a screen one second. This is a short video. This, I don't know. I'm a West Wing fan and this just strikes me. Okay. So I'm setting up the scene. This is, um, after, uh, the president's, uh, secretary got killed in a car crash and he's ranting at God and 
right after the funeral of the church. Um, We don't hear the volume, uh, Joel. Joel, you got to share computer sound. How do I do that? I've got to do that or he's got to do that? Joel has to do that. It's on, on your share bar. Share computer sound. What did I ever do to yours but praise his glory and praise his name? What did I ever do to yours but praise his glory? What was Josh Lyman? A warning shot? That was my son. What did I ever do to yours but praise his glory and praise his name? So, in other words, he's Josh Lyman was his assistant, was, you know, someone in his staff, and he was... He was uh, killed, he was hit by a uh, attempted assassin, and he's saying Josh Lyman was my son. Well, Josh Lyman wasn't his son, but he's saying he was as if my son. As if it was my son, he's trying to create a, an analogy, some sort of equality between you trying to kill my son and what did I do to your son except praise his, his glory and praise his name. So I think the same thing here. The, the, whoever the Aaron Sorkin was who wrote the wrote this was just trying to justify me killing the, or uh, your firstborn is because you didn't um, release my firstborn. Very nice. I, 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 a really nice connection between the way firstborn is going to play out in the in the coupling in the couple chapters, right? So, and it's interesting that Rashi doesn't go there, or if he does go there, doesn't this make an explicit? He doesn't say explicitly this the significance of Israel being now claimed by God as a Bahor, right? Ratifying what Jacob had done to Esau looms so large for the scenes that are about to come. But that's a wonderful pickup that you made. Um, I was going to say something else. Oh, in in um, in common uh, speech, we we play around with um, familiar relationships colloquially, right? Like how many? There are definitely people in my in my life for whom I complete a text or my email, like, see you later, my brother, right? Um, we, we, and in Hebrew all the time, you know, what's happening, my brother. So we do use familial relationships, brother, cousin, sister, to refer to, some, to someone who is maybe more endearing to us or with whom we have a more endearing relationship um, than other people who are not related to us. And it's, it's an elevation. It's an elevation to call someone your brother, right? Um, and it's a beautiful, I've forgotten that scene, but it's an elevation for president Bartlett to call his Josh Lyman, his son. Great. Um, let's see, uh, Rebecca Menace. Uh, good morning. Um, I just, I was again, also because looking ahead to what, what the, the threat would be in the next, in the next line, which is to kill your firstborn. Um, to me, it feels like we should be interpreting this as the first son or the, and in terms of, of a son, I would think that um, here Israel is being, um, being assigned the role of the first people to have a relationship with God. So in that respect, they are like a firstborn. And so just in, 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 in an effort to keep it simple and not go into 
Israel being Jacob and, and elevated, might be just simply the first people to have a relationship because that is what he want. He's saying to Pharaoh, let them go so they can worship me. They can, you know, follow up on this relationship. Wonderful, Rebecca. I really love that comment. You're basically doing what, what Rashi could have said but didn't say, right? Another, another way uh, of joining the two usages of the world, word is that they're about to be a Bahor in the sense the, 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 the first people who are going to worship me as I deserve to be worshipped, right? And that, and it's so, and, and we, we know that we've talked about it. There's a lot of birth imagery with the Exodus, right? Going, going through the divided Red Sea, that, that, that is very, or Sea of Reeds, that is a very birth imagery, right? So on the other side of that, who's been born? Bahor Yisrael on some level. And, and as Joel, and, uh, forgot already who just reminded us, um, on the, on the, um, yeah, Joel did, on the backs of the elimination or the targeting of Bahor Mitzrayim. So Bahor, um, is going to have a lot of play, um, literally and conceptually, as we imagine, the birth of the nation. Listen, Pesach, why, why, why is, um, why is Pesach a new, a new year, right? We, be, Rosh Hashanah is one of the odometer switches in our, you know, fantastical counting of since the beginning of time. That's when the earth was created. But the Jewish people were created, were born Pesach, right? And that's why it's uh, the first month in the um, in the in the counting of the of, of the Torah. Uh, so there's definitely birth imagery throughout that story. Norm, and then we'll go on. I'm, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the chosen people concept has been controversial for a long time. And I'm wondering if Rashi might be saying to the local bishop in Rhymes or wherever, um, golly, this is uh, just talking about the dispute about Yaakov and Esav, and, it, you know, you don't have to feel threatened by it. <laughs> nice. Very nice term. Okay. Uh, anything else on on verse twenty two? Let's go to verse twenty three. Let's see some we haven't heard from Judy. Are you willing to read verse twenty three for us? Ba'amor Alecha. Yes, I am. It's so nice to see you, Judy. Same here for everyone and for you. So, okay, twenty three. And here I go. Okay, tell me. uh, Chapter 4, verse 23. Wait a minute. You're in Shemot 4.23? Correct. Okay, I'm all the way ahead of you. Maybe you should have someone else read. Sure, you'll get that. Well, okay, I'm in chapter four now. Thanks for your patience, everyone.
Okay, so you can translate that. Forgive me because I am not seeing so well. Okay. Um, um, I have said to you. And who's the I in the verse? Because there's a lot. There's, this is another verse in the Torah. We have quotation marks within quotation marks within quotation marks. Is who's the Hashem? I? Yeah, it, it's it, it certainly, as Rashi can help us in a second, it, it, it means Hashem, but the one who is actually speaking is Moshe, right? Um, because the, the previous verse is God saying to Moses, you're going to say to Pharaoh, <laughs> this is what God has God has said. Yes. My, uh, my that Israel is my firstborn. So va Omar Elecha, and I um I said to you, well, ra- well, we'll wait for Rashi to resolve it, but either could mean I, Moses, whom speaking to you right now, Pharaoh, said to you, or I, Moses, am reminding you that God said to you, okay, Shalachat Panivi Abdeni. Um uh, my son and my servant. Um, so shalach at, at beni. I said to you, send. send my son. And it's vayavdeni. If 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 Ebed here were a noun, it might have been servant. It's in a verbal form, and it's I will it, work. And 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 remember that avad can mean both work in biblical Hebrew and worship like the Avodah yeah. service, right? So I said to you, Pharaoh, release my son so that he, it's, that's why it's singular because there's reference to Ben, he will oved oti, he will serve me, release my son Israel so he will serve me. And, and you have refused um is that it? And you have refused to send. Right. No. Yeah, exactly. You have refused to send him, right? And this is explaining the brashi from the previous verse that says, "Well, then this can't be the first interaction between Moses and Pharaoh that God is anticipating, because already by this scene that God is anticipating, which obviously hasn't happened yet because it's a prediction, there's already been a refusal to send. So God is saying that Moses is going to say to Pharaoh." Mm-hmm. You, you refuse to send uh, Israel whom I asked for. And now and, what is God's response? And I will uh, kill your son, um, your firstborn. Good. So the shot does what Rashi, what, what, what uh, Joel was speaking about in the previous verse that Rashi doesn't, not that he doesn't pick up on it, but doesn't play with in his commentary on Bechor, that there is a mirroring here. God is going to say through Moses in his encounter with Pharaoh, not the original encounter in Pharaoh with Pharaoh, but after Pharaoh had refused, if you're not going to release my Bechor, I'm going to kill your son, your Bechor. So there is a symmetry um, between verse 22 and 23 regarding 
uh, Bechor and what's going to happen to the firstborn. Good. Um, questions on the verse before we jump in the Rashi? Anything that jumps out at you in the language, the structure, the content? Well, the one thing that comes to mind immediately is that uh, we are we learn that uh, eye for an eye is not literal, and yet here uh, it seems to be literal. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned that I'm um, of the many ways that I'm committed to Torah study. I'm doing I've been doing Dash Fui, the weekly page of Talmud through the Conservative Yeshiva in. Jerusalem for many years now. One day, maybe I'll have the the uh, the patience to do Daf Yomi, and I, I praise anyone who's doing it now. It's not the pace that I'm comfortable at um, doing it, so I'm doing a page of Talmud a week, uh, in addition to other stuff that I explore. And right now, we're in the part of the Talmud in Masechet Babakama that's actually dealing with the very derivation of that law, and and how did it come to be? that yad tachad yad and ayin tachad ayin, hand for a hand and eye for an eye, was interpreted by the rabbis to mean money and not um, um, not an actual corporal, corporal punishment. And it's interesting to see the development of that idea. We, we've, we've inherited the result of that development, but the, it's interesting to see the rabbis say, it's not so clear that it doesn't, we're not supposed to take it literally. Uh, and yet here in this scene, in the narrative part of it, God is saying uh, it's a, a very literal equation between what you refuse to do for my Bechor and what I'm therefore forced to do to your Bechor. Good. I'll point out while you're thinking of any other questions in the verse, anybody, that the, the uh, unclus here helps us with that word Vayavdeni because Judy is right that Vayavdeni could mean um, to, to, to work or to work for me or to do labor. And he translates it not to the Aramaic word for work, but the Aramaic word for worship. You should say to him, send my son, Bri is bar, right? Lies in bar mitzvah. He will palach, pay lamechet. Pay lamechet in Aramaic is to worship. Um, um, and he will worship kadamai in my presence. Good. Um, anything else on the verse? We'll look at the Rashi. Going once. Oh. There's a whole line of people. Oh, sorry. I was scrolled down and I hadn't seen any of them. Now I see them. Larry Diane, go ahead. This is a tense verse. By that I mean, look at the tr- different translations. Jacobus, I have said to you, let my son go that he may worship you, yet you refuse to let, refuse, not refused, refuse to let him go. Now I will slay your firstborn son. I now read Kaplan. What was the first one you read? That's JPS. Okay. That's the J. That's what's in uh, in um, in Sfari. Now I read Kaplan, who says, "I have told you to let my son go and serve me. If you refuse to let him leave, I will ultimately kill your own firstborn son." Which is Arya Kaplan's way of saying he rejects Rashi's previous comment, right? Because yeah. the driver of Rashi's previous comment was the sense that there hasn't been a refusal yet. Arya is reading the verse to suggest, yes, there's been a refusal. I mean, uh, correct, there has not been a refusal yet. Okay, go ahead. And now alter. And I said to you, send off my son that he may worship me. 
And you refused, refused to send him off. And look, I am about to kill your son, your firstborn. So almost every permutation of how you might tensify or whatever the the term is put in, in different tenses, the verbs are used here. And well, I, just got, I just got your pun. I'm slow in the uptake. You said it was a tense verse. I'm a like, tense, yeah, it's tense. tense. Not more than tense any of the other verse. Got it. Okay. And I just want to make one more comment because I know others will talk about this and I have no resolution and I haven't read the commentaries yet. But I want to make a note. I think this is the very first time that when I personally, and I know, of, uh, no, no offense to anybody else here, um, I personally take as the connivingness of God in this story it's the first time we're told, we're only asking you to let us go out and worship. We're not asking you that we want to get out of here, which is what God told Moses at the very beginning. He's going to rescue his people. And this is the first time, and then it comes back later on. And if you, if, if you read carefully the buildup of all the the Asimakot, you'll see that basically Moses and God were disingenuous in, in how they were approaching pro- approaching the poor Pharaoh yeah. who is being manipulated. Yeah. There's, there's something else here. And that is that God is implying that he's actually directly talked to Pharaoh. And we haven't seen any evidence of that. It's all been through Moshe. So. Except that remember, this is all a prediction, right? This is all. It's, it's actually, it's, it's Moses is the eye here. It's the continuation of the previous, of the previous verse. So Moses is saying, and I said to you, but he's, but, no. but he's saying it in the, but it's, it's the soup. What's the, what we call the super perfect. I, I, I will have said, because it hasn't happened yet. Right. The context for this is that Moses, Moshe is not yet in Egypt, but God is, it's like the, the coda of the burning bush is God saying to Moshe, this is what's going to happen. And in that scene, when it happens, you will say to him, either Rashi, I asked you to leave and you refused. Or Arya Kaplan, I'm asking you. I'm asking you to send them out. And should you refuse, this is what's going to happen. But it's all in a predictive mode. None of it's actually taken place yet. Um, as we're comparing translations, Everett Fox, uh, I said to you, send free my son that he may serve me. But you have refused to send him free. Perfect tense. And he adds in the word so. In parentheses, uh, he, he wants the so to be added in in front of the word here, hine. So here, colon, I will kill your son, comma, your firstborn, exclamation point. And he translates before firstborn here and firstborn in the previous verse for that symmetry. Uh, Rick. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, it's a prediction, but it doesn't happen. Um, God, through Moses, Moses never says it like this. He says, Shalach et Ami. He doesn't say, Shalach et Bani. And mm. he doesn't do the Bani v'chari Yisrael either. It's it's just not there. So do, do any of the commentaries uh, mention that? That that how this scene is anticipated doesn't actually come out come out to be? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Whenever, whenever you ask, does, do, do any of the commentaries mention that? I'm always at a loss because I don't, I don't, I don't know, know them all comprehensively. But yeah. you're right that if we graph on the the 
scenes at the burning bush and at this coda onto what's actually going to happen when they get to Egypt, it's not a one-to-one match, correct? So no, nobody's ever brought it up or uh, commented on it that you know of, yeah? Again, I, I can't answer yeah. whether okay. or not anyone has ever, but but many people have have, have recognized that, that, that we've had, we have this long, not a prophecy, but a, a anticipation, a preview as to what's going to happen in the, indi- in the individual scene. And if we just go up one level, the way the Torah tells a story is that the encounter that God predicts will happen between Moshe and Pharaoh happens bigadol, but not every specific detail, ha- detail happens the way it's described in advance in the burning bush. Correct. Yeah. I, I just think there's something going on there. It's the same thing Moses was worried about how the people would react, and they just believe him by Amen. It's it's like one word they believe him, and and he was worried that they wouldn't. So the, there's something there to anticipate something that doesn't ever happen. Um, that's that's part of life. I don't know. I'm not a rabbi to make a a grand uh, a grand statement about it, but there's something going on here that all this dialogue, all this stuff, and it doesn't happen that way. So you have to deal with life the way it is, I guess. I don't know. Um, let, let, let's hold that. Maybe we'll come back to it when we actually get to those scenes and see how different they really are. Uh, Elon. Yeah, I noticed that many of the commentators translated in the conditional that if you don't let... Uh, my people go, I will kill your firstborn. I, I think that is because that makes them comfortable, right? Because it gives Pharaoh the option. And it's, it bothers me that people insist on making a translation that makes them comfortable. That's not what it says. Right. In fact, what it says is predictive, which is I am going to ask you to let my people go. You are going to say no, and I will kill your firstborn. And thereby leaving Pharaoh no choice, right? Because if somebody comes to me and says, here's the deal, this is when, what it's going to look like, I'm going to be like, okay, if, if it's inevitable anyway, I'm going to do whatever I can to battle that. So you're going to throw all this stuff at me, and I'm going to push back against it. it, it's, it to me, um, it's very troublesome, and I'm willing to live with the troublesome concept. I, I don't think you have to gloss over everything that's troublesome to make it palatable. Yeah, it's a very astute comment. And that comment now gives a greater engine to the Rashi we're going to get to on this verse either this week or next, because I had not, uh, I'll give away a little bit of the, of the punchline. I had not, until you said this, one thought about whether or not the reason Rashi makes the comment he does is because he's troubled by a supposition you could make about the scene if he doesn't read it that way. And so it makes his comment a little more harif. So thank you for that. And we'll see what, if we get to it today. Uh, Tova. Um, I wanted to comment on uh, the uh, echoing of the phrase uh, at Bincha Bechorecha, which echoes the uh, Beni Bechori earlier, because yeah. uh, we spent some time establishing what that Bechori part meant and that it could mean, and Rashi suggests that it means elevated. I just wanted to throw in that in point of historical fact, pharaonic secession <laughs> Succession was not um, automatically primogeniture. Mm. For much of Egyptian history, there were certainly many times when the eldest did succeed, but it was not automatically assumed. There wasn't a crown prince per se. And 
in the 19th dynasty, when this would historically most likely have been placed, uh, all the more so because by that time the pharaohs had very large harems, many, many sons, and it could it, it would almost be the most historically accurate to suggest that the heir is not your firstborn, but the one that you have elevated. So okay. in fact, the interpretation we gave for Rashi fits the latter part of this verse very well. That's fascinating, Tova. Thank you so much for that, because what you've done is taken the the, the, the lyricism of Bani Vichori compared to Bincha Bichorecha, yeah. uh, and you've said that, that, that historically it may be that the very question of why Israel could be called Bichor even if they weren't the first actually very much mirrors what was happening in ancient Egyptian society. Yeah. Great. So, so illuminating. Thank you. Uh, Norman. Norm. I think this is... Uh possibly a verse that should be taken very much at face value, that the threat is just to Pharaoh's firstborn. Doesn't need to be the firstborn of every human and animal and perhaps plant in Egypt. Doesn't need to be preceded by nine other plagues. It's just a threat at Pharaoh's firstborn or elevated one or most important ones even, Um, but not necessarily, could be the whole leadership, but not necessarily um, a plague affecting everyone, every family in Egypt. Um, and I think that's, uh, it's a shame that it didn't come to pass because um, it's entirely possible that all they had to do was kill uh, a very small number of people and Pharaoh would have said, get out of here. Um, while I'm thinking about the comment, I need, need to readjust where I am because my computer is about to run out of battery. So hold on, I have to move to additional part of my office where I plug. But that's really interesting, Norm. Um, I wonder, and you don't have to answer, Elon, but I wonder how that comment um, changes the potential discomfort of the verse to think about that if, if we are indeed saying that God is, pre- is predicting, if not even making happen, uh, Pharaoh's refusal, the only thing at stake at the time was not the destruction of the entire nation, but not that this is a small thing. Was the what was was the direct eye for eye, right? The you know Israel, the people is my firstborn. Your son or the one you've ch- you've chosen to be your successor is your firstborn. And right now, those are the only two things that are at stake. And depending on how you act in the in the in the um, in the interim, might impact whether or not other people suffer. So it's interesting. I never read it that way, Norm. That's, that's really interesting. Is this? It, it doesn't change my perspective because I still don't think that he's giving Pharaoh the option. Right. I still I still read it as he's saying this is what's going to happen. Yeah. So um, it, 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 whether we're talking about just killing Pharaoh's firstborn or the firstborn of all Egyptians it's still predictive as opposed to conditional. Correct. If we, if we read it as predictive, it's still problematic, but it's what Norm is offering is, is it possible for us to read this as much narrower? If we didn't know the rest of the story, which we do, could we read this scene as understanding that Pharaoh's being personally threatened, um, which is different than the entire nation of Egypt suffering for his recalcitrance. Um, Joanna, Barry, and then let's see if we can get into that Rashi that we've been uh, anticipating. 
Um, two quick comments. The confusion over the pronouns in this verse and is, are they God or is that a reference to God or to Moses is interesting in light of what we read a few verses ago when God said, So mm-hmm. again, this whole intermixing of, of what does that mean? And um, the other thing I just wanted to point out is the end of this verse could have been, so what does inserting that hine add to the verse? It's always interesting to me when the, those hines, which seem to call attention somehow, the nuance and the shade that that adds. And I had this thought even before this whole long line of comments that we had. And in every translation that has been read, hine has been translated differently. Mm. So it's just sort of fascinating what that hine is getting at in this verse. Yeah. Um, the hine is, is uh, translated by Unclus to ha, which doesn't help us, except that what it ha doesn't mean in Aramaic is a, is a direct translation of the Hebrew hine, but it's some, it's some kind of a, uh, some kind of an interjection that is supposed to impact the, the, the flow and the timing of the, of the verse. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Barry. Well, uh, simplifying uh, this section here and uh, the tongue, the, the grammatical tongue twisters that are included in here, um, this is like a spoiler alert that God's talking to Moshe. Uh, it's, you, you, we use the word predictive, but it's a spoiler alert. So it's a, it's a tight, tight summary. Uh, to, uh, Moshe will anticipate what's going to happen. No one's talking to Pharaoh yet. Um, and and that, those details will play out later and open up. But this is just a tight spoiler alert summary. Right. So then the question, and particularly as we think about Norm's comment, or I mean, Rick's comment about how this actually plays out and Elon's comment about whether Pharaoh is given a choice. It's helpful to be reminded as Barry just did. And that we talked about when Diane was speaking for that this hasn't happened yet. This is God telling, and Pharaoh isn't even being informed in this verse, right? Just to remind to you, Elon, Pharaoh is going to be told pretty harshly that on some level, he doesn't have a choice here, but not yet in this verse. The only one hearing this is, is Moses. We are hearing we are witnessing Moses is hearing from God. This is what God says is going to happen. And in that scene, Pharaoh is going to hear this message, but he hasn't heard it yet. Right. Um, good. Thank you for that, Barry. Uh, Judy, are you uh, up to reading the Rashi or do you want me to uh, take that for you? Are you still there, Judy? Yeah. She's not in her head. Yes. Yes. You want me to take it for you? Okay, so in the interest of time, let me just read this Rashi because I want to get to it because we've been focusing on it. So Rashi says uh, two things on this verse. The first is a three-word um, uh, comment. Ba'omar Alechab, dealing with who's speaking here. And I said to you, Rashi is answering the question, who is the speaker here? Is it Moses? And the answer is, Bishlichuto shalmakom. That, yes, that, that I, Moses, in my role as a messenger of God. Um, Makom here is the, the, the omnipresent. God is everywhere. Um, I, Moses, will have said to you, it hasn't, it hasn't happened yet. Okay. Shalach et ami hine anochi horeg. So the dibur hamachil, the words upon which Rashi is commenting, and I'll add it again 
maybe because the Dibureha Machil were almost certainly added in afterwards by editors. So it's a guess as to whether or not Rashi was specifically speaking about these three words. But it's a, it's the, if, if we take the, the Dibureha Machil at face value, we're supposed to read the following comment as a comment on the flow of words of the sending of my son and uh, or send my son from Egypt and the threat of what's going to happen, the very part of the verse that's uh, bothering Elon and perhaps many of you, the Gomer. He maka achrona. This is a reference to the 10th plague, right? It's the final maka. Again, a nod to, um, a nod to norm, right? And, and only the 10th plague. Rashi is, is weighing in a little bit with these words, achrona, suggesting that there will be others before this, but this is a laser focus on the last one. Uva hitrahu techila. And with this, and this, Ilan, I'm interested in your thought on Rashi, he warned him in advance. Hitrahu is a warning, right? So you are reading it as a certainty. Rashi's reading it, maybe because he's troubled by the same thing you're troubled by, saying, no, this is actually a warning. Because it's so harsh. He warned him because the punishment that is coming might be just but harsh. The zehu she'amah. And this is what is, uh, we've said in a, in Beishit Reb, um, in a, in a different source. Hain el yasgiv b'kocho. This is a quote from the book of Job, from Job. Let me share it with you. I have it up. Okay. Book of Job, you know, the basic story, um, uh, of the, of the one who's, uh, who suffers as a test of his faith. And we have this uh, verse that's taken way out of context from the story of Job that Rashi is quoting as a proof, te- a proof text. Um, once again, I'm just amazed at the extent to which Rashi literally knew every verse of the Bible by heart and could recall it in its intricacy as a way of making an interesting proof text. Hain el yasgiv b'kocho. Behold, another hine hain, God is, is exalted in his strength. Segev means to be like different and exceptional. Mi chamohu moreh. The translation by JPS here is who governs like him. You could read the mi chamohu chamohu moreh, meaning <clears throat> who is like God as a teacher, moreh, as an instructor, as an illuminator. So if I'm going to reread this verse the way Rashi is reading it in English, sort of, since God is so powerful, there is no one like him as a teacher. He has to be, or it's amazing the extent to which he's a teacher and a revealer, given his strength and power. How does it mean, how does it work in our, in our verse, Kori Rashi? Lefichach, therefore, mi chamohu moreh, who is like him as a teacher from Eov? Basar vadam, imagine a human person with authority. Who wants to enact vengeance upon his fellow, maybe even deserve vengeance. He doesn't tell him in advance. He, he conceals what he's, a do, he's going to do to his friend or his non friend. Once he's at the point of vengeance, when all of us, when we're at the point where we realize that we're, we're going to take a revenge on someone, we're not going to let the person know because we want to be able to enact that vengeance. We, want, we don't want to give them a heads up. 
Aval Hakadosh Baruch Hu, but the Holy One, blessed be He, because He is so strong in His power and His vengeance is so um, um, vicious. He becomes a more, a teacher and an illuminator. Aval Hakadosh Baruch Hu Yazgiv B'Kocho, very very powerful. Ve'ein Yacholat Lehimalet Miado, and since there is no way for the person on whom God wants to take revenge to to rescue himself or herself, except except through tshuva. This is very Book of Jonah-ish, even though the quote is from Job. Therefore, God, because he's strong, because he's powerful, because, I keep using he, but I'm not intending to, because God is, is everything and God knows the impact that the vengeance, vengeful act will have, God becomes a moret, instructs the object of the vengeance in advance, Umatrebo warns him, Lashuv. Meaning, and Elon, you can reject this. Rashi is reading this verse as saying, look at God's beneficence. God tells Pharaoh what's going to happen in the future so that Pharaoh has a chance to do tshuva, which we know he doesn't, but at least he was told how horrible it was going to be. If we were plotting against somebody, we would want the plot to come as a surprise so they couldn't wriggle out from it. Okay. Elon, you get the right of first refusal here. What do you, what's your react, reaction to Rashi? So I, it, it just strengthens my perspective that Rashi uh, is trying to make this interaction more palatable. Yeah. I'm curious whether you can think of an example where Rashi looks at a verse and says, this is troublesome, and that's it. Like, like I'm okay with a verse being troublesome. It, it's fine, right? But it seems to me that, and I've only been doing this uh, since the beginning of Shmot, that every time there is a troublesome verse, Rossi tries to find some justification for it. And just, it, it, he's unable to accept that it's troublesome. Yeah. Elon, you're, you're definitely onto something. And those of us who've been in the class long enough to remember some of the uh, the Yaakov Esav uh, commentaries and, and even before that, the um, Yitzchak Yishmael, it is the case that Rashi, and not alone, um, sees himself as a defender of the text and a defender of the Holy One and a defender of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if given a choice to read Jacob positively and Asaph negatively, he's going to. And given a choice to read God sympathetically or God um, harshly, for the most part, Rashi is a inheritor and a passer on of a tradition that is wont to read God positively, but not without ever levying a critique. So I think that in general, you're right. And by the way, in general, I sort of sympathize with that, right? Like I, I'm, I want to be an honest reader of text, but I want the impact of my teaching as a rabbi to be that the people that I'm studying with walk away as proud worshipers of the Holy One and proud inheritors of the of the of, of the characterological um, in, uh, inheritance that our ancestors gave to us, part of what we've inherited from them is that they is that they are flawed and that God changes God's mind and God apologizes. But in general, we want to be embracers of that tradition. And uh, rabbis like Rashi and those before him and after him saw that one of the ways they can help their community embrace that tradition is to paint things in a way that is that is yes as, as palatable as possible. But but not not by never levying meaningful critique against either God, which by the way is remarkable because most religious traditions do not have their intellectual history 
representing critiques against the Holy One, right? You, you, it would be considered blasphemy even to say that in Islam, even in moderate Islam, right? And this is not a critique of Islam. It's just a, a statement about it. It's to, to say anything about, uh, other, other than the utter glory and infallibility of God, of Allah is blasphemy, right? That is not our way, but we still do see, uh, Rashi choosing to soften what comes off to us rightly as harsh. Uh, Tova, last comment of the class. Uh, uh, complicated. Uh, I, I think at heart, I, I agree with Ilan, but I, I also can't help thinking about my own human experience of, of counseling people at, at certain times who have had ongoing patterns that were self-destructive and using terminology like, you are going to do this again, and this is going to be the consequence to you, yeah. as if it's a statement of fact. Yes. When in fact, it's not something that I want to see happen to them. And I realize this gets into a theological morass in that uh, we can perhaps think in terms of, well, then what about God's omnipotence, knowing what's you know, going to happen? But if you treat human free will as a wild card, in a sense, he could be stating a fact of this person's uh, character and traits but free will might allow the potential of Pharaoh changing his mind and therefore changing what is coming. Extraordinary. Uh, so extraordinary yeah. Tova. There's a, um, between now and next week, if you want to, there's an extraordinary comment that was obviously composed by uh, Harold Kushner, who was the editor of the Midra of the, of the, of the, of the drash part of the commentary in Eitz Chaim Chumash on one of the places where it says that he, uh, that he, God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Parshat, I believe, maybe it's in Ba'era. Uh, Rabbi Kushner wrote a relatively long note at the bottom uh, explaining something very similar to what you just explained, that the way we can get out of the pickle of saying that God punishes Pharaoh for something that it seems God did to him is to suggest that good behavior and negative behavior become habitual, and that in the beginning, it was, you look closely, it was God, it was Pharaoh hardening his own heart, by the time it got to the fourth and fifth plague, when we says that God hardened his heart, what we're sh- we should understand by that is that God created a world in which if you continue to make the same mistake over and over again, it'll become so habitual that you'll not be able to walk away from it. Anyone who's ever struggled with a behavior or an addiction or something that they can't stop doing recognizes that. It, patterns are hard to break. And so we read from the fifth or sixth plague on, plague on God hardened his heart. Not that God, God went they, like this, but God created this way of being a human being and his heart was hardened beyond, beyond return because he had done it to himself so often. So Baruch Shekivant, um, as you, as you connect that idea to something that Rabbi Kushner wrote, you can find that comment in the Chaim. I forgot what page. All right. Sorry for the three minutes extra. Um, and sorry for having to switch positions mid-class and have a good week. Call two. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.